Welcome back to Plus One. It's me, your old buddy, CH, and I'm back with Jeff Gomez. Hey, Jeff. Hey there. So great to be back. Maybe we should give you a new title like Meta Master, Transmedia Master. <laughs> Dungeon Master. <laughs> Dungeon Master. So we decided to get together because everyone's talking about Marvel and what's going on with Marvel. And there's a million articles about Marvel. And we thought this would be a good case study to talk about transmedia and what could go right and what could go wrong and how to manage these really complex properties that can get really big and, and in some cases unwieldy. Just to tee up, our energy going into this is as fans and as professionals who are in the industry who want to learn from what's going on uh, at Marvel because... It's one thing to talk about these ideas in practice, in theory, but another to put them into practice. Um, but, uh, and we come at this constructively and don't want to disparage Marvel or anything like that because we're huge fans, but want to be honestly critical and use this as a learning opportunity. Absolutely, uh, uh, Chris, uh, 100%. I love this stuff. Uh, I want it to succeed. There are things about how franchises cycle through themselves and move through time that I had hoped would be avoided because they die. <laughs> they, that's what cycles are about. They, they're born, they reach this apex, and then they start to decline. And, and I've always been a believer that evergreen franchises, evergreen brands are capable of rebirthing themselves. And certainly I'm hoping for this with uh, not just the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but DC and Star Wars, e even the Disney company as a whole. Yeah, we talked about this last time, but we're exiting, it feels, Hollywood's big push into phase one of transmedia, right? And now we're moving to phase two, which is, okay, we've tried it. It worked. Some things didn't work or didn't sustain and now we're learning how to evolve the model and to use Marvel as a case study. So there's sort of two things I'd like to talk about. One is the MCU in general, and then the Marvels specifically and how things manifested in the Marvels having the lowest opening of any uh, Marvel movie. So let's start with the MCU in general. What is your macro take on the state of the MCU? Obviously, there are uh, problems with it, Chris. There's no doubt at this point. There was a point where I was a little slower to judgment with regard to the, the so-called decline because uh, I appreciated the fact that when I refer to Kevin Feige, I'm really referring to Marvel and Disney as a whole with him as a kind of guiding figurehead. But Feige used the capital of Avengers Endgame to experiment and to point his camera at, at new superheroes and widen the diversity of superheroes. So that was great. It, it, it didn't take too long, however, before I saw that, that the pictures, both in terms of the MCU feature films and the Disney Plus shows, they, they were starting to succumb to um, uh, the trappings of, of the final phase of genre. I think we talked about this a little bit before, deconstruction, um, uh, the point in time where things get a little silly <laughs> and where quality starts to slip. And, and by the time we got to Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, Thor, Love and Thunder, I, I started to worry a little bit about where it was all going. Hmm. What are the specific issues that you think have manifested okay uh, again to remind the audience about a genre cycles and, and this is my definition not necessarily uh, uh some of my colleagues um you start out experimental right iron man and hulk uh, are are just a new way of looking at the superhero uh genre and once that gets nailed down you move into the classic phase two the captain america the original Avengers uh, kind of phase where you're really delighting your audience. Everyone's having a great time. Phase three in the genre cycle is refinement. Now we're going to really take this seriously and show you cool stuff. 
Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. you start to break out into subgenres. Ant-Man is a heist movie, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Phase four gets, I call it Baroque. It, it, it gets weird. You, you've got Deadpool and WandaVision, where you're, you're pushing the boundaries of what your fans expect. But generally, it's interesting and engaging and grabs people. But some do fall off. This isn't exactly what I signed on for uh, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, and then finally, the, the fifth phase of genre is deconstruction. I'm going to start examining myself. <laughs> and sometimes that can be really interesting. Watchmen, the great late 1980s graphic novels were deconstruction graphic novels. The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller, a Watchmen by Alan Moore. That was mm-hmm. cool. And that's the best that can come out of deconstruction. But uh, deconstruction often happens when you're starting to rush things and you are not paying as much attention to the quality storytelling, to writing. So here are the things, Chris, I'm telling you. (laughs) Number one, multiplicity, the evil twin. Uh, 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 You're immediately (laughs) subverting the specialness of your characters by telling us that there are um, uh, identical characters in other universes, mirror, all all this sort of doubling and tripling and quadrupling. And in the case of uh, Spider-Verse, there's a million uh, uh, Spider-Men. Race and gender swapping. We're going to tell this story, except instead of a dude, it's a chick something I call head up ass, uh, meaning you're making so many references to to your own text that the audience will lose track of what's going on. Right. Um, and anyone new to the situation is completely lost. Silliness. And we saw a whole lot of that in the Marvels. <laughs> Actually, we saw all of these in, in the Marvels. Subverted integrity a character that was uh, n- noble and, and powerful and, and strong and confident brought low, sometimes only for the purposes of bringing them low as a convenience. We saw this with Thor in, in Thor Love and Thunder. We certainly saw it with uh, Nick Fury. Gosh. And the last two are cheapness because you're rushing things and stuff suddenly doesn't look as good uh, mm-hmm. in the picture the special effects and so forth. And uh, finally, and this is the one, Chris, that nobody talks about in the trades, waging war on your customer. Bingo. Waging war on your customer. That is either the corporation or key figures on the creative end, including actors um, responding to criticism by condemning the critic. And not by arguing the point, but by condemning the critic. And once you start doing that, your audience starts to look for evidence that you're against them. And in the case of a lot of the Disney projects, the audience found <laughs> evidence. And that creates a, a conflict situation that can only ever impact bottom line. And that's what's happening here. God, there's so much to unpack here. I wasn't sure if you were going to mention that last one, but to me, it's a huge part of the strained relationship between Marvel and the audience. And it manifests to me in 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 two forms, or there's two insights I take from it. One is that, and She-Hulk is to me the poster child of this. Sure. That the kind of postmodernist storytelling approach becomes so inside the navel that now you've got the showrunners of She-Hulk in this case sniping at Nerdrotic and all of these YouTube channels. And meanwhile, 95% of the people watching that show have no idea what that subtextual element is about. But what they feel is, I'm feeling judged. Why are you swiping at me, the fan? 
right? Why is the fan the enemy of this story? Like, I'm the good guy. I'm watching this. I paid for this. I'm spending my time on it. I watched this whole series. Yeah. And then in the final episode, you're telling me I'm the problem when I'm watching your thing. It, and then the second thing I think connected to that that it makes me think is that you really have to get creators and talent. You almost have to prep them for people who are shitty on the internet. It shouldn't be a shock at this point. That's and right. you have to be, you have to have a game plan for how to deal with that. And there are some creators that I think, or showrunners, whatever talent that get so obsessed with the negativity or the, that it just completely, it's like the only thing they focus on. And so, you know, on social media, on red carpets, on whatever, and even in the writing, that becomes their focus is to snipe with the audience instead of making the art that people enjoy. And I think that you have to understand that people have strong opinions about these things. They always have. And some of them are bullshit and some of them are toxic. But when you mass blast the whole audience, you're going to, you're going to alienate them because they're not all doing that. No, they're not, but it wakes up some notion in audience members who don't have anything to do with that conflict. If Ewan McGregor gets on a video and says, if you feel that XYZ is bad, you're racist and so forth, um, he, he's not addressing this very a tiny minority of, of people uh, on, on the internet. He's addressing me. I'm I'm sitting there being chastised by Ewan McGregor. And you don't you know, know why you're being chastised, by the way, because you didn't watch the video. You didn't necessarily make that comment. Maybe you didn't like the series. That's fine. You cannot like it. Right. You cannot like it for your own reasons. I, I may have thought that was a weekly written character. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And maybe I didn't like her for whatever reason. But he's telling me I didn't like her for one reason, and this is what is creating this friction. And uh, once or twice is whatever. But when you do it constantly, constantly, um, uh, you are you're generating difficulties. And by the way, this is not just Star Wars or MCU. This is not even just Disney. This is anyone. This is corporate narrative and big companies and big brands have to understand that the world is is a different place and, yeah. and we to, to communicate to people in a di- in a different way we we have to aspire to our our better angels we have to we have to act the way that our brand presents itself mm-hmm. a jedi knight wouldn't necessarily come out and say those things right <laughs> a jedi knight would say here's the way of the force join me in aspiring to these values and we well, talked about this a little bit last time. When my work in Web3, like we do a lot of building in public. We're on Twitter, which is like the most wild west of any social media platform. People say all kinds of crazy shit. This false expectation that they're going to get generationally rich from some NFT they buy. That's right. And they get very emotional about it. And I've really watched these creators that are that these founders that are really good at the audience management, being in public kind of thing. And one of the things I've noticed is they're not pushovers. They don't just sit there and take everyone's shit, but they're pretty selective and targeted when they push back and how they push back. So they're tough and they don't just take it. But one of the things that they know, I think, from being on these platforms as users is a lot of the like more out there behavior and things people are saying, they're saying it into a void. And they don't think anyone's listening. And then when they find out that someone's listening and willing to interact with them, the behavior often changes a lot. There, there, there is an element of old traditional media is not used to an interactive dialogue with the audience. And they're used to, kind of, we produce the stuff, you view it, and that's a relationship. And there's not a feedback loop other than ticket sales or whatever. And in the world that we live in, that's just not the way it's going to go, right? No, uh, in, in fact, it's been the opposite in some cases with some companies, a, a tone deafness, uh, an inability to to understand the shifting landscape 
of attitudes and trends and beliefs among amongst their audience. So listening and establishing an architecture for listening and for dialogue is just vital in this day and age. A, a lot of companies still to this day, and it's a mystery to me why they wouldn't, as opposed to something like Five Nights at Freddy's, which is an, an ongoing dialogue and has been from the start of that franchise as a humble little video game for kids, <laughs> but all the way through to the way that the film was distributed and the content of the film uh, itself uh, was, a, it was like a party, <laughs> you know, a, a fabulous dialogue between audience and creator. So I know Scott Cawthorn, and huh. I, who's the creator of Five Nights, and I worked with him briefly at Universal. And this is a guy who, it, it's the anti-Marvel in a way, right? Because he's, mm. you know, he's a he's a very conservative guy, lives in very small town Texas. And he's not very online, but he does listen to his audience very intensely. And a lot of these are kids, but... That movie, a lot of people who went to see that movie who are not Five Nights friends were like, I don't really get it. What's all the, what is this about? That movie, and I think you can do this in the very beginning. You can't do this in movie five, but it was very fan service for the, it was for that audience. But what he needed to do in that film was get those people that have played this game as kids or who have grown up with it into theaters and prove that this was a viable film franchise. And then he can bring more eyeballs and more people into it. So it's interesting in, in that sense. You're, you're right. It was smart. It was smart. Uh, without that, it would have been a pretty conventional movie. <laughs> yeah, and other people have docked it off, right? Other Willie's Wonderland. Right. And there have been other movies that have tried to exploit, because Scott was taking so long on the script, yes. other people came out and made knockoff films. None of them did as well. So I want to get into this issue also of just a macro thing in the MCU around this new group of characters. And here's my thinking on it, and I'd like yours. Sure. Uh, one is that they kill off a lot of characters that everybody loves in Endgame, which was great and added to the drama. It was, I think they did the right thing. But now you have a problem that everybody's favorites are gone. So they start recasting and gender swapping and this kind of stuff. And they chose to draw from the all new, all, all different era, which if you're a comic fan, that was not a hugely successful run. And, and they did the same thing in the comics where they took all these characters all at once Mm -hmm. and swapped them and took the mantle of one character and gave it to someone else. And they did it across multiple characters all at once. And they and there was a negative reaction to that. It hurt Marvel comic sales. And what's always been weird to me is that they focused on that aspect to achieve their diversity goals instead of X-Men, which is an enormously, and always has been a very diverse property that that is about racism it has the characters and the themes that they wanted to talk about but they focused on recasting captain america and thor and some of these other characters instead and then i feel like they also didn't build those characters up if you've read for example the thor arc where jane foster is thor that's right that's a fucking awesome run in the comics but the reason it's great is that you go across multiple issues where she's going back and forth struggling with her cancer and being this hero right and the longer she's the hero the more the worse her cancer gets and they did that in the film but with a lot of other characters that get thrown in there like valkyrie and all this other stuff so you throw in a lot of other characters and that arc, that aspect is so small that you don't really get the chance for Jane Foster for you to feel the the arc the way that you do in the comics, right? And perfunctory. Yeah. And, and 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 to me, it's not okay, we're gonna we're gonna gender swap or race drop this character. I think that's okay, and I think you can do that. I think you should be able to do that. It's been done in comics forever. There have been multiple Captain Americas. No one no one ever likes 
the replacement Captain America as much as they like Steve Rogers because Steve Rogers is it's just like when they had uh Damian Wayne or whoever step into the mantle of Batman you want Bruce back right it's those characters are synonymous with the mantle but also it feels to me like they did too many of these things at once and they didn't give enough time to build those characters up and so it felt to the audience who maybe was skeptical you're forcing this on me instead of winning me over with the story and making me get behind these characters. So Chris, I'm agreeing with you. And and to define it from my perspective, uh, I go back to one of the number one maxims in in corporate and, and brand narrative, which is to know your foundational narrative. And we've forgotten it a little bit here. What distinguishes Marvel superheroes? Marvel superheroes reach for the stars despite having feet of clay if you look at everything from eternals to the marvels with a couple of exceptions that's not the case that's not Mm -hmm. the case the the heroes of the recent cycles of the marvel cinematic universe are either perfect Mm -hmm. they can do no wrong right the characters in a black panther wakanda forever there were no feet of clay anytime they decided to assert their will, boom, they got what they wanted with relative ease at times. Marvel's, absolutely, that's the case. They're dorks. Ant-Man and Thor just wandered through their stories without being, even sometimes being connected to the narrative. The recipe (laughs) of the Coca-Cola and the Kentucky Fried Chicken, if you throw that recipe away and say new Coke, (laughs) you're going to have some problems. And that's a brand thing. And you just have to remember that. Uh, Sometimes, Chris, and I I admit, having worked with talent, because I've been an editor, I've been a producer, I've, I've made video games, and sometimes your talent is coming from a different direction and they're vociferous and they want to assert themselves on your narrative. And, and in the past, uh, Feige and his team were like, okay, a little of this, but stop because this is what Marvel is. They themselves as producers and kept hold of that fundamental definition. It looked like in this case, a lot more rope was fed to particularly the writers and perhaps some directors. And you got something that floated much further away from that core MCU brand and the audience reacted. But let's talk about one place it worked, right? Which is Miles Morales and Spider-Verse. Spider-Verse is great storytelling. It's visually stunning. You can't take your eyes off it. It's a revolution in animation. There's so many great things about it. The thing to me that works, though, the reason nobody rejects Miles Morales and you don't hear the same stuff is that it it is the same formula as Peter Parker, but he's a different person. But it's all the same elements. He's a kid. He wants to do the right thing. He has a Uncle Ben type figure in his dad, but he's got the uncle who is a criminal. He's torn between these two father figure-ish type people trying to figure out who he wants to be. He's got real world problems. He's broke. All of that kind of, he's a blue collar guy, goes to high school, has romantic problems, all of that stuff. It's classic Spider-Man, but just with a different character in a different setting that makes you rethink. It's a positive version to me of postmodern storytelling and deconstruction where Yes, we're going to change the race and who this guy is, but we're not going to take him too far away from, he's still in New York. So we're go- what we're going to do is shift the lens a little bit and then say, what if somebody very similar to Peter Parker could, al- could also be Spider-Man? And, 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 and it's going to make us think about what it means to be Spider-Man, not just Peter Parker puts on a costume and has some powers. But what does, with great power comes great responsibility. What does that mean? And is that, what's transferable about this? That, to me, is why people accept Miles Morales, but reject some of these other characters. Chris, in in full disclosure, I I worked on the Spider-Man franchise for Amy Pascal at Sony. And we had that conversation exactly. And, And your point proves my point. 
she understood she knows spider-man really well and and we only confirmed it through our documentation through evidence that in miles morales you are observing the foundational narrative of spider-man because those elements are there the beauty of those animated films and i'm talking about the full trilogy is that they turned canonicity into art. How much of the foundational narrative must be mm -hmm. here to, in order for this character to still be Spider-Man? The character himself is resisting those canonical moments. He doesn't want his dad to have to die, <laughs> right? And he's going to spend a whole movie next movie in the third part of the trilogy to push back against that so that he could assert his selfhood and, and his individuation uh, from Peter Parker. And I think that's beautiful. That's the way to comment on a brand or franchise. To have well, it's, it's subverting expectations, right. right? It's subverting expectations in a positive way. Without subverting way. the character. Right. Without subverting the character. Yeah. So what it's saying is, hey, you know how this plays out, which is Uncle Bill gets killed. And Miles doesn't want to ha want that to happen to him and his family and his dad. So now we're going to see, can Miles break the pattern of what happened to Peter Parker? Now that's interesting because I get to see something new, but and I feel like I know the formula and then you change it a little bit, but in a way that doesn't break the character. No, uh, in, in a way, in fact, that comments on his ethnicity, that comments on yeah. his race, that that um, that that makes us understand why there needs to be a different story told about Spider-Man than the Peter Parker story, and uh, that's that's fantastic. That's the way to do it. So we're where we are with the MCU, and um, I think everyone agrees, including Bob Iger. They've come out and said, "Okay, too many movies, too many sequels of characters that maybe didn't need sequels. Too many TV shows. We're going to cut it down." We're going to focus. We're going to get the quality up. Kevin Feige's not going to have to look after 85 different projects. We're going to have him look after a smaller slate. They're only going to put out one Marvel movie next year, which will be Deadpool 3, leading into kind of a retooled whatever we are in, phase five, phase six. I've, I've lost count. Mm -hmm. But we still have this period where, and they have the Jonathan Majors situation they're dealing with, and Kang. There's two issues there. There's Jonathan Majors in his own kind of personal situation and then there's kang who we could talk about a little bit but he's a very problematic character for me both in terms of how he's been portrayed and also just like the threat level so you're where you are you're leading we know we're headed to secret wars right. there's two different versions of secret wars there's original recipe secret wars which was like the 1980s and the, the idea was really just it was from i think mattel at the time actually asked for it it was throw all the toys all the toys on the floor and let's see what happens when they all fight and then yeah, there's sure. Jonathan Hickman's secret wars which I think we're going to borrow from a lot more which is the more recent secret wars that was probably one of the best crossover events in the history of comic books that was very heady and really explored this idea of different versions of different characters in different settings and different worlds but in a way that was interesting and not just a gimmick. So we know we're headed to Secret Wars. We're here where we are now. How does Marvel navigate its way towards the end of the, the, the MCU as we've known it and into this reboot? Right, right. It's yes, it, it has been a, a, certainly a, a challenge in narrative design, as I call it. And first of all, the issue has been for many fans who you talk to that there has not been a driving force. The character was introduced on Disney Plus and not shown to be a terrifying threat or something that was pulling everything together the way that Thanos did. And in many of these earlier films, there was no evidence that sort of thing was even happening in the background or in the stingers at the end of, of the movies and, and so forth. So the audience has been waiting. We're introduced to the character as a, a real direct physical threat in Ant-Man and the Wasp. He is dispatched by Ant-Man. Sorry, spoilers. That didn't bode well. And, and, and of course, you have the, these other problems. When I introduced my concepts for transmedia storytelling, knowing 
the behaviors of mass audiences and knowing how audiences follow a, a franchise, dating all the way back to Japanese media mix. You tell each story as if it's its own story, beginning, middle, mm -hmm. and end. You have to give the audience the information they need to enjoy this ch chunk of story by itself. And yes, you have to be clever in order to get that done. And yes, you it, it can be uh, frustrating, but you just got to. And I'm shocked sometimes that I watch these movies. And I'm talking about Ahsoka, a, a, a series I wanted to adore. Me too. If I'm sitting next to someone who didn't watch 86 hours of animation and she was completely lost. Who are these people? What's happening? Mm. There's no explanation. There's no excuse for that, Chris. And, and, and second of all, you have to make your narrative design sensibility bulletproof. You, you can't have the hubris of believing that everything is going well. Disney does this beautifully in its theme parks. Uh, I call it the P factor, right? Mm -hmm. If you build it in a, a Walt Disney World, someone will pee on it <laughs> because that's yeah. human nature. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you have to build that into your plans so that your these contingencies jump in when something falters. And and so if it isn't Kang or Kang suddenly some doesn't seem to be working out. You got Dr. Doom waiting in the wings, right? <laughs> Interestingly, the end of Loki, the, this most recent series, I don't know, looked like it tied up the Kang thing to me. <laughs> it could. It certainly could. To talk about Loki for a second, I, sure. I don't know how you felt. I, I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a, a huge contrast that in one week you have the Marvels come out, which got low audience scores by all metrics people didn't like the movie right mm -hmm. and then you have loki which is to me one of the best stories season two that marvel has ever told now it's dense it's time travel there are a lot of people got, got lost in the when all the time travel shenanigans but what i loved about it is it wasn't after it was over i was like these are the stories i love from the comics it, 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 because I think there's this over-reliance on kind of the stereotypical superhero story trope. There's a big bad, the traditional hero's arc, all that other stuff, or hero's journey. And it gets rote after a while. And so after you've seen, and let's not forget that the first and second Captain America movies were not that great. The first Thor movie, like these origin stories, sometimes they're what we remember the characters for. But a lot of times the more interesting stories are when they're a little more developed. Yeah. And so you go through that cycle, you introduce this new cycle with these like all different characters, and you're basically making us relive all that again, where versus something like Loki, where you get on the ride and you don't know where the hell it's going. And it ends up in a place that I, I don't think anyone could tell you that that watching episode one of season two of Loki that you would predict that it ended the way it did. And that, to me, is the unpredictability and the just the originality of storytelling. It's just, holy shit. When I look back on Loki, I saw somebody post an article the other day about Loki saying he's the best character in the MCU. And I'm like, I completely agree. Because we followed this guy from being petty, self-centered, wants to subjugate other people just to make himself feel important, to selflessly saves the entire universe by, in a very tangible way in a very tangible way and giving up everything for it giving up all human connection all everything he's not going to get any glory they, they even talk about glorious purpose in that last episode where it's his glorious purpose is not one where anyone will ever know ever give him any credit there will never be any statues built but he saved the entire universe so to see that entire arc and a character developed like that's great storytelling. And that, that to me feels like the seeds of where the MCU needs to go. The supervillain became a superhero uh, in the greatest sense of the word. And by the way, feet of clay reached for the stars. 
a foundational Marvel tenet. It, it's funny that you say, oh, we should have more of that. It's what we had yeah, <laughs> and lost. And this reminds us of how it can truly be special. Special, not just in the fact that it's repeating some cyclic element of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, special in that we can be surprised and delighted because the creators of Loki were given the time right. <laughs> to write something beautiful, to write something that's elegant. Yeah, there's a little denseness with the time travel stuff, but uh, you can pull that and put that aside because of that grand finale and because of the sacrifice that character made and the warmth that that emerged you saw it happen over the course of those episodes and that's what we want you, you now you have to take that back to the features now so we're going to go through secret wars we know there's going to be a reset and we know what's on the other side of the reset is is the x-men we're get I have some nervousness about Feige bringing back all of these Fox X-Men beast is in the Marvel spoiler. We know they're going to bring back Hugh Jackman again after his amazing exit in Logan. We're going to, we're going to undo that and bring him back. Everyone loves Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. So we're all up for another go, but I'm a little worried about, bringing back these they they had done a good job of drying up uh, up the market around x-men and building some hunger and now they're supplying it with these fox characters that i feel like no one was asking for that for that last bow from them we had already done it and then and then you're going to immediately need to bring the x-men or or mutants of some kind into the story and those mutant stories have been told so many times with when the Fox stuff and in the comics and how do we find our way into the X-Men without repeating the same problem of people feeling like you're just repeating yourself. I've heard this before. I liked it better when it was Hugh Jackman. How do we, how, how do we get to a place where we get the X-Men and everyone's excited about it? I think there are two factors that are going on here. First, is the personal factor. I'm going to grant Kevin Feige his final bow because we know in, in reality that he was an associate producer. Right. He, he involved with those original X-Men films. He had relationships with those actors um, and almost never was satisfied with the outcome <laughs> in those films. So this is his chance to take those actors and give them a final bow in the form that he could have ideally imagined them. And you see this in the, the facial features of Beast in Marvels and, and so forth. He's going to do them upright and, and let them have one last thing. And I'll, I, as far as I'm concerned, I can grant him, mm -hmm. him that. The second uh, part, though, you're absolutely right. That's a danger. We don't want to see those stories again. In some uh, senses, we've seen repeated stories in the old X-Men franchise and so forth. It was tiresome then. We don't want to see it yet again now. And one of the final criteria that I have for evergreen brands, for brands that have to stick around a, a, a while, is that you must be attentive to the world around you. If the entire uh, early phase of the Marvel Cinematic Universe was a kind of post 9-11 rumination uh, about how much to assert securities over ourselves mm. and surveillance and, and so forth versus um, our desire to be a, a free uh, and democratic people. We felt that. We, we understood both Iron Man and Captain America's argument when they, they went to go about that issue all the way through Endgame that that was those were fundamental issues that were of import to anyone walking into the movie theater conscious or subconscious from that point to now they're trying to suggest that because the world has become so splintered and fractured and we don't know what's a truth and what's a lie and and, and so forth in reality 
the multiverse becomes that kind of cycle. But I don't think they were aware of how that's supposed to end. <laughs> what are you telling us ab about our fractured, discombobulated, multiversal world? I I'm not seeing quite what it is, uh, except that I'm sure glad that Loki's got it all tied up. <laughs> so what will the X-Men represent? Not as far as having a multinational group from the 80s and 90s. That's right. quaint nice but it's not now what do you have to say what does being a mutant mean now and don't ram some kind of ideology down my throat either so you better be careful right they have to sit down with mutants and decide what they represent in the marvel cinematic universe and in our world god that's uh, so true man it's not going to work you're just yeah you're so right it's mark miller when he wrote civil war like that is a totally a, a post 9-11 story. And, you know, as you're talking, I just think there's kind of art imitating life, imitating art. You know, we're now in this place where our world is a shit show. The MCU is a shit show. <laughs> like, so they're mirroring one <laughs> another, right? So Feige yeah. can land the plane if the brilliant move is okay it's chaotic. We get it's chaotic. Everyone's feeling it's chaotic. There's tension around these different characters and what they mean and all of this. But some of the best Avenger stories are Avengers disassembled and reassembled type stories. It's okay. We dis we've now disassembled the Avengers. We've replaced the Avengers. We've gone through all of this. How do we reassemble the Avengers? And in doing so, reassemble and create a new world for ourselves and these characters to live in post battle world right. post secret wars i'm certainly not talented enough to pull it off i know kevin personally you know him personally <laughs> i think he is talented enough to pull it off but boy it's a hard plane to land but i want to focus on one thing you just said which is the point about ideology so i'm usually on the other side of this argument where i'm a more conservative guy and i'm feel like there's too much Hollywood kind of high mind politics injecting itself into the entertainment sometimes. However, I will defend <laughs> the idea that political themes have a place. There, there, There is no Marvel without political themes. Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and all these guys we're talking about these themes of racism and poverty and gl global conflict and the Vietnam War and all of these things. Marvel has always had commentary on the real world, but there's a way to do it, which is I'm not judging the audience. What I'm doing is I'm telling a story that's going to appeal to your better angels and I'm gonna bring you along with me, not tell you you're not, you don't belong here. And and, and But if you go past that, what can the X-Men mean in our current world? Because it feels like there's a lot of themes there. You can't do the X-Men right if you don't somehow have some level of political or contemporary commentary. I just don't think. but Because they're not just superheroes, right? But how do you do it in a post-Secret Wars 2024 after whatever the hell we're going to go through next year? <laughs> how do you do that? How do you? What do the X-Men mean in that world? I'm going to speak to Kevin right now because I'm sure he, he uh, watches this podcast. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> Kevin, uh, teach us dynamic reconciliation. Have the X-Men come from very different perspectives. Have them differ from one another, not just in terms of how they look, where they're from, and what their powers are, but who they are fundamentally as people, and then show us how they pull themselves together and how they contend with the people who uh, find them suspect, who are biased against them. Mm -hmm. Don't give us some long, convoluted narrative that has to do with uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. That's 20th century. Right. Tell us about how there are differences and strong and deep divides 
between my house waving some flag and my next door neighbor's house is waving a very different flag mm -hmm. and their neighbor's house and their neighbor's house and we all live on the same block and if the shit goes down we're going to have problems with each other so i want stories that teach us how to get over deep fissures in our psyches and in our relationships with one another before we even face the challenges of international issues or other crises like climate change and the meta crisis and so forth. Can the X-Men teach us that? What's it like to be a hero who has to not always punch the other guy in the face and send them through a building in order to resolve the conflict? There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about, I just started reading the new Hickman run on X-Men and it's new to me. He's been doing it for the last couple of years, but a lot of people say it's one of the best runs ever on X-Men mm -hmm. and he reinvents it. I have not finished it yet, so I don't know where it's going to end up, uh, but I'll be interested to see how he reinvented it. But what you're making me think about is this whole conversation between Charles Xavier and Nito is a mutant supremacist, right? Yes. Magneto's idea, and, th and this is not in the movies. In the movies with Ian McClellan, he's just a bad guy and he gets the bad guys together and it's the bad guys versus the good guys beat him up kind of thing. And he has bad guy ambitions. In the comics, his idea is we are the future of not the human race we are a new race called the mutants the mutant race we are superior to human beings they are a threat to us we are more powerful than them and we should destroy them or at least fight them to the point that they no longer want to hunt us anymore sure. and charles is an integrationist he's of the mind that we can live together in peace we can live side by side. Mutants can offer something to humanity. Humans can offer us a way to remember our humanness because we are derived of human beings. And that conversation runs throughout the entire series of the X-Men. Okay. It's something only comic books can do. I don't know if you can have a mutant supremacist character in a big budget movie. I don't know. but. I feel like there's something in those seeds, right? That 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 can be reinterpreted. And I think what another thing you said that's so important is it can't be World War II. It can't be they were in the they were in the camps together, right? It can't be that because contemporary audiences don't relate to that. It can't be Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, which is a lot of it. It's got to be framed in our context for today and reinvented for. For, for where we're at to resonate with audiences now. Otherwise, it will feel like a retread. what they've already done. Agreed. And that takes time and talent <laughs> to, to sit there and grapple with that. You're talking about, beautifully stated, those foundational narratives for X-Men. And they, in many ways, they are timeless, because if you strip away the proper nouns, <laughs> this is an aspect of the human condition that dates back to Cro-Magnons and Homo sapiens <laughs> uh, and, and so forth. So they just have to listen. They just have to turn around, get out of that Hollywood bubble and look at the world and the state of the world and not just what's terrible about us, but what some of us are trying to do how there are solutions to these to the problems that we're facing and if you can root out those solutions if you can figure out the, at least the path toward those solutions you can create wonderful fantastical metaphors that become fresh and new mm -hmm. that we don't have to see the same story over and over again yeah it makes me think of and not to step on a massive landmine but a little bit of the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that we're seeing now. And one thing that I've observed is that Americans are really disconnected from the reality of war. And I have an Israeli client that I work with. And so 
I talk to them all the time and their reality and the way they understand the world around them is just completely different from the conversation over here. And without getting into all of those dynamics, the thing that it makes me think is that storytelling can portray the realities of these conflicts in a way in which no one actually has to die. Mm -hmm. But for us to explore the idea of what war really means or conflict really means. But then on the flip side, we can also craft resolutions that are harder to achieve in the real world, right? Because achieving real peace in the Middle East is something that a lot of people have tried for a long time and we'll keep trying until hopefully one day we achieve it. But in the comics, in the movies, we can find ways to resolve these conflicts where maybe we can make our characters a little more willing to see one another's perspectives or what have you. And it does feel like there's a service that can be done there to take those not literally, you can't be too literal or people get lost in the literality of it, but to take the kind of meta conflict that we live in and imagine possibilities that are not Hollywood endings that are not gimmicks or too contrite or too, or too, too crafted or whatever feel too inauthentic, but that imagine a way out. That's what I think the best of comics, the best of this kind of storytelling does. That's right. And that imagination is not the work of a single character. That imagination is the work of the juxtaposition of the perspectives of multiple characters from across the system, because it's the systems that's flawed. Not to make it trite, but Israeli-Palestine, that conflict is is not a binary. It it is a a part of a greater system that has a deep fundamental uh, flaw in it. And there are people who are benefiting from that flaw. You can call them supervillains, but they're not all supervillains. Some of them are us. And the level of complexity around that, and I distinguish complexity also from complication. Complicated means that you're just throwing more wires onto the bird's nest and they go all over the place and it doesn't not all of them work and the plane is shaking in the sky and it becomes extraordinarily difficult to fix and it would take multiple characters from different parts of this universe fictional Mm -hmm. or real to cross and blend and project between them a solution or series of solutions to elevate that into art, as you uh, say, Chris, is how Kevin can really use transmedia storytelling. Kevin Feige is now in charge of Marvel Comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, he can create a, a line of comics that are MCU comics. Um, he he has Disney Plus. He has the the, the movies. He can show us a complex system. He can help to resolve aspects of it using these stories. We don't have to see a story about some obscure character who's off in some corner who has nothing to do with it because, oh, the audience will appreciate the fact that it's a complete story and not have to follow a million other things. Tell us a story about how two X-Men come to terms with one another. And it can be cool and spectacular and interesting. WandaVision was that. Two Avengers came to terms with one another. That was beautiful and strange and and interesting. Yeah. Do that with these side characters so you don't have to jam it all into a, a feature film and make it count and teach us something. Show us something about this greater universe and what needs to be done you can do that across comic books disney play anything and that makes each piece important and interesting and intriguing and we become involved and yet it all feels like it's heading somewhere Mm -hmm. and that's the that's one alternative to how to direct the franchise last question because we're running low on time teeing off what you just said what should storytellers take away from the MCU and all the positives and some of the challenges and apply to 
this next generation of transmedia storytelling. They should listen to this episode. <laughs> and and uh, so, so much of your contribution, I really, I'm digging it to Chris. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, you too, man. To summarize, <laughs> know your foundational narrative, know thyself, and you got to stick to it. Uh, at the same time, you've got to establish a long-term plan. Where is this going? And where does it end? And that's a problem. You do have to end things every so often mm-hmm. uh, to give it a rest, to reset. And every all evergreen brands do this, right? Whether it's Barbies or Hot Wheels or mm-hmm. skateboards or roller skates, you know what? They they come, they hang out for a while, and they they rest for a while, and then they spinning. Remember tops, spinning tops. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every so often, boom, some new twist on it happens and we, we we have them again. It doesn't have to rest for that long, but it ought to rest. There ought to be a period of contemplation and, and self-examination. Okay, now I'm ready to begin this next thing. Great rock and roll artists do that. They cut an album and they hold off for a year or so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So there's that. Um, and then you can change your long-term plan along the way if you need to. You have to validate and celebrate your customers. You have to uh, listen to them. Um, if you don't like what they're saying, but there's a lot of them and they're screaming loud, you, you might want to pay a little attention because in this day and age, the cyclic element, you're seeing it, Chris, you're seeing yeah. it everywhere. It, it spins up faster. It just never faster. ends. Yeah. Blindingly fast. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got to get ahead of that stuff and be prepared. You have to prepare your responses to them. Sometimes they really are opposed to you uh, f- fundamentally. So you've got to be able to respond to that. Look, this is who I am. If you don't like it, Stick around a while. Maybe something will appeal to you later. Or there's DC. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes they're mistaken or, or I'm mistaken, in which case we go, oh, sorry, you didn't get it. Here's what it really is. And, and let's fix this together. And sometimes they're right. <laughs> and you have to admit, you go, gee, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I gave this impression that I hated you. <laughs> and if you feel that way, then we have to fix it. <laughs> That's actually a, a, an interesting one to maybe one while we're one last thinging. It feels like we can't not talk about the Pandaverse and S- South Park before we go, because that is the story in the end. But everyone's focused on the Cartman and put a woman in it, make it lame, mm-hmm. that thing. Right. But the actual story is that at the end, he's sitting at a table, Cartman is with Kathy Kennedy, and he's I don't hate you. I thought you hated me. And That's it turns out that they just got worked up at one another online. But when they sat in a diner as human beings, they were able to get on side and then they go and fix the world together. It felt like everything you're saying about how the cycle of dialogue between the studios and the audience yeah, sort of escalates is that no one is de-escalating and no one is trying to see you know one thing i've found is that people don't always know how to ex- have the words to express what they don't like about these things precisely chris precisely so it sounds like i don't want girls Mm-hmm. But what they really mean is, I really liked this character, and you took them away and replaced them with this other person for what I perceive to be your own motivations, and I'm mad that you took the thing I like away. Um, or the thing you replaced it with, absolutely perfect in every way, <laughs> uh, and does not earn um, uh, their status or their powers or and so forth. Yeah. But it seems to do transmedia storytelling, because inherently, when you talk about transmedia, you're talking about an interactive process. Like, I I wouldn't understand how to do it without listening to the audience. And being able to develop the right skill set around listening and responding 
seems like it's absolutely crucial because the story will go off the rails at some point. It's just, it's hard to keep the quality up. And like, it seems like that element has to be figured out or you get at odds with your audience and you could just never fix it. That's correct. That's correct. And so they're helpful, Chris. And, and even though some are crotchety and some use offensive words and so forth, they're all really beautiful because they care. Even the ones that are against you care about the intellectual property and they're a part of the conversation. They have to be, they, if you shut them out, you are waging war and, um, and you can't. Um, I mean, that's not what heroes do, right? <laughs> hey man it's been a pleasure it's been a great conversation again thank you for coming on thank you everyone for listening to plus one and i'm sure a, a few plugs yeah plug away <laughs> in a short time i'm going to actually put out the 10 maxims of corporate narrative it's a kind of white paper on this exact type of situation as it applies to not just entertainment companies, but any company and so forth. And I think people who are interested in transmedia storytelling and in story worlds will will really be interested in the document. It's coming soon and I'll post on LinkedIn and my social media. So my social media on Twitter is at Jeff underscore Gomez. And but that's a, a lot of that is about Ultraman because I'm I deal in Ultraman these days, the franchise. But also on LinkedIn, both you and I talk about a lot of this stuff in our posts on LinkedIn. Jeff Gomez. Thank you, Jeff. And and maybe when you put the white paper out, we can we can have you on. Oh, talk wow. That'd be great. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thanks for doing this. And thanks to the audience. And we'll see you soon. Take care.